Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. The four gospel accounts of the resurrection, the one we just heard read, Matthew's, is easily the most dramatic. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. Where Mark, in his gospel, writes that the women were met by a young man dressed in white, and Luke records that it was two men in dazzling clothes, Matthew unflinchingly says it's an angel of the Lord descending from heaven accompanied by the very earth shaking all round. Matthew, too, writes of soldiers having been placed by the tomb to prevent the body of Jesus from being stolen, soldiers who in this angelic light become like dead men. There's other variations in the telling of the Easter story as well. Matthew says that it's Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary, who go to the tomb that morning. Mark adds the figure of Salome. Luke says it's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women. Sounds like a bit of a crowd. In John's telling, Mary Magdalene goes alone to the tomb. Although as soon as she discovers it's empty, she races back to get Peter and John, and together they flee straight to the tomb to see. But, you know, we shouldn't be particularly troubled by differences amongst these gospel accounts. For one thing, the writers didn't take up their pens to write their gospel accounts until 30, maybe 40 years after the events took place. Even within a sturdy and dependable oral tradition as it was, details can begin to shift. Memories do what memories do. I'm sure Salome was there, you can hear Mark saying. I'm sure Peter said she was. Of course, these gospel writers never imagined themselves to be journalists, investigators, or historians in any modern sense. They were all about proclaiming the good news, not creating the most accurate update for Wikipedia. As the most Jewish of the gospel writers, the one most attuned to the textures and the tones of the Hebrew scriptures, Matthew would have expected nothing less than earthquakes and angels. Yet, had you asked any one of the four gospel writers whose account was most true, he would have given you a puzzled look, maybe even wondered at the rationality of your question, and then answered quite clearly, Jesus is true. There is, though, fundamental agreement in the gospel resurrection accounts on at least two key points. First of all, the tomb was empty, which for them means not a resuscitated corpse, but resurrection. 
Those are very different things, you see. There are stories of resuscitated corpses or dead people being brought back to life in the Gospels. There's the young daughter of a synagogue leader. There's the adult son of the widow of Nain. And, of course, there's Lazarus, the dead brought back to life. As if it simply wasn't possible for Jesus to encounter a corpse who didn't immediately sit up and take notice of his presence. But these are all stories of people brought back from death who would, in time, grow old and eventually die again. As proclaimed by all four Gospels, what Jesus' empty tomb signifies is not that but resurrection kingdom of heaven life, new creation life, which is more alive than anyone had ever been before or since. So alive, in fact, that this world of ours could barely contain him for the 40 days he shared with his followers after his resurrection. What the empty tomb signifies to all four gospel writers is that a new world has begun. And that what has happened to Jesus at that specific moment in time and history is what will in the fullness of time be held out to all of us. Though it can be hard to discern in our own halting lives and our own halting world, death no longer has the final word. It will not defeat us. In fact, the kingdom of God is among you already. And that means for all that we will die, death has no ultimate claim. That's what resurrection says. Secondly, though, the four Gospels all agree that Mary Magdalene was there, perhaps on her own, perhaps in the company of other women, but she was there. She was there as a first witness to the resurrection of her beloved teacher, Jesus Now, there's an ancient tradition dating back at least to St. Augustine of calling Mary Magdalene the apostle to the apostles because she heard the news first and then she carried it back to the disciples who were still in hiding. As far as honorific titles go, apostle to the apostles is not a bad one means that Augustine recognized something of the significance of Mary's role. It's also a a kind of a recognition of her fairly prominent place in the gospel narratives, where more mention is made of Mary Magdalene than is made of most of the twelve disciples. I suspect, though, that Magdalene herself would have not been much impressed by the honorific title What did matter to her was that her rabbi, her teacher, her healer was alive. Now that was news worth telling. Do you know why it was that Mary was the first one to the tomb, the first witness to the resurrection? In part, it was because she could be. Whoever those guards were that Matthew talks about, when Mary Magdalene arrived they'd hardly even have taken notice. They were guards watching for the likes of Peter and that lot. Not for women. Beginning from the place where they were all hiding, she could walk right through the town, 
past Roman soldiers, past temple authorities, straight into the garden, past the guards sitting there, and pay that visit to the tomb. Barely even being seen along the way, because women in that world simply didn't figure much. Not worth noticing. So Magdalene was partly there because it was safe for her to be there, but more importantly, there was probably nothing in the world that could have kept her away. Quite early in the gospel narratives, Jesus frees her from a spiritual sickness, a, a possession. And it would seem that after that, she was never far from him. As Jesus did with others who'd been pushed to the society's edges, he recognized Mary's full personhood. He treated her with dignity and with respect, something not often extended to women in that religious world. And so when the time came for Jesus to journey to Jerusalem, there Mary was with him. When he went to his death, she's there as well. She will bear witness with the other women at the cross right through. And at the moment when he's laid in the tomb, she's there again. When the Sabbath day had passed, she had to go for yet another visit, to go to see the tomb. We do that sort of thing, you know. People go and visit graves. They know they're not going to see the person buried in the ground, But somehow to go and visit that place and to see that stone marker and to have those memories, it's a powerful thing. It's a human thing. She needed to do it. What will the world be like without him? What will my world be like without him? It's pure poetry, the truest poetry, that it is to her that Jesus first appears It's a confirmation of everything he had ever taught her about himself. It's confirmation, too, about everything he'd ever taught her about herself, about God's version of the world, in which the marginal and the outcast and the lowly are brought up and given place and role and dignity and respect. This is the way the world really works, he'd been saying to them. So isn't it poetic that she's the first witness? As Matthew tells it, Magdalene and the other Mary took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me there. And I imagine a smile creasing the face of Jesus as he speaks these words to those two women. Whatever will Peter and the others make of it when it is the women who arrive carrying the most important news the world has ever heard? It's a lovely little detail tucked into John's telling of the story. Having discovered that the tomb is empty, Mary is standing alone in the garden, weeping, And Jesus comes to her and asks, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Maybe because her eyes are brimming full of tears, she at first mistakes the resurrected Christ for the gardener. That's a bit of poetry too. The resurrected Christ, the one who St. Paul will call the last Adam, 
as a gardener. Unlike the first Adam, this one will not be cast out of the garden, but instead will move freely from that place, summoning his scared followers to become the disciples he's always meant them to be, and in his name to claim the whole of the world, the whole of creation as his garden. It's still happening. That's still our story. Stanley Hauerwas writes in his commentary on this resurrection text from Matthew, the truth that is Jesus is a truth that requires discipleship. For it is only by being transformed by what he has taught and by what he has done that we, notice Hauerwas is not saying them way back then, but we, present tense, It's only by being transformed by what Jesus has taught and by what Jesus has done that we can come to know the way the world is. The world is not what it appears to be because sin has scarred the world's appearance. The world has been redeemed, but to see the world's redemption, to see Jesus requires that we be caught up in the joy of that comes from serving him. We are the next line in the long line of disciples that started not simply with the original 12, but with Magdalene and the other women as well. And it is up to us to follow and in doing that to experience the very joy that comes from serving him. That's our resurrection calling, our Easter calling to seek to become disciples in that way and to follow this one on the greatest adventure that begins yet again today and tomorrow and next week and next year. Always new beginning, always new creation, always new life. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.